Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, August 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Georgia police investigate threats against a Trump jury. The head of Maui's emergency agency resigns. China property giant Evergrande files for U.S. bankruptcy protection. Ethiopia's Tigray says 1,400 have died following food aid suspension. The U.S. says Kyiv's counteroffensive will fail in its key goal. Iran's foreign minister visits Saudi Arabia. Disney files another lawsuit against DeSantis's oversight board. Hurricane Hillary moves toward California. Jordanian intelligence is accused of targeting the LGBTQ community. And the International Chess Federation bars trans players from women's events. In our top story, Georgia police investigate threats against a Trump jury. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, New York Times, ABC News, and The Guardian. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office in Georgia said on Friday it's investigating alleged threats made against members of the grand jury that indicted former President Donald Trump this week after the jurors' personal information was disseminated online. Reports have emerged that photographs, home addresses, and social media profiles that match the names of at least 13 out of the 26 jurors are circulating on far-right websites. In Georgia, the names of the grand jury members are included in the indictment. Alongside the personal information, threats have also reportedly been made against the jurors online, with the sheriff's office saying they've attempted to track down those responsible. The Federal Bureau of Investigation's Atlanta office is also cooperating with Fulton County law enforcement to investigate threats made against county officials involved in the prosecution of Trump and his allies. The jurors, all residents of Fulton County, indicted Trump and 18 others on Monday, charges that the accused conspired to overturn Georgia's results in the 2020 presidential election. This is Trump's fourth indictment. This week, Texas woman Abigail Jo Schrey was arrested and charged with threatening Judge Tanya Shutkan, who is overseeing Trump's Washington, D.C. criminal case. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric just laid out the facts, and our first spin is the anti-Trump narrative from Time magazine. Trapped under a mountain of legal woes, Donald Trump has resorted to lashing out at those prosecuting him, fomenting violence. His long track record of disparaging and attacking government officials has emboldened his followers to threaten violence against those that are simply doing their job. Unless Trump rebukes violence and tones down his rhetoric, the violent threats will only continue in severity thanks to his tacit approval. We counter that with a pro-Trump narrative coming from New York Post. The indictments against Donald Trump should never have been made in the first place, as it's a weaponized legal system, not Trump, that is inciting discontent and anger. The American people are upset about these blatantly political charges, which risk inflaming tensions in the country. These charges are clearly partisan and are robbing the voting public of making the ultimate judgment on Trump next year. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This time, they predict there's a 25% chance that Donald Trump will be disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th of 2025. Uh, Eric, I think there's a a group that would be happy if Trump was disqualified, that 25% chance, but I almost shudder to think what would happen to the Trump base, what they would do if if he was just, you know, summarily ruled out of the presidency. Good question. You think they would just hop sides to some other candidate or do you think they would just be all out of a job? My personal opinion is that it would be for the best for everyone if 
Trump was able to run and then wins or loses fair and square. I think that if he was told that he couldn't compete for whatever reason, I think that would only lengthen the controversy. The only way to win is to face him and win. Right. Of course, then he might win. Crapshoot. Either way you go. Maui's county emergency manager resigns as the fires still burn. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Hawaii News Now, NBC, CBS, Daily Mail, CNN, and the Associated Press. Herman Andaya, the Maui Emergency Management Agency administrator, who defended his decision not to sound indoor sirens while a deadly fire ravaged the island, has resigned from his position effective immediately. Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson announced Andaya's resignation in a news release Thursday, and the now former administrator cited health reasons for his decision. This also follows close scrutiny of Maui's wildfire response. On Wednesday, Andaya reaffirmed his decision not to activate alarms during the devastating wildfires in Lahaina that have now caused at least 111 confirmed deaths. No evacuation sirens sounded when the August 8th fires broke out. Andaya argued that sounding the sirens would have instinctively alerted people to Mauka, Hawaiian for mountainside, since the public is trained to seek higher ground in the event sirens are sounded as the sirens have been primarily utilized in tsunamis and storms. Instead, Andaya sent out alerts via mobile devices, radio, television, and the county alert system, despite widespread power outages. News outlets have questioned his experience prior to assuming his role as Maui's county emergency manager in 2017. The Maui fire has been logged as the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century, obliterating the economic and cultural hub of Lahaina. The official death toll is still rising as officials search amidst the more than 2,000 burned homes and businesses and more than 1,000 residents remaining unaccounted for. Those were the facts, and we begin our round of spins with a left narrative coming from Time magazine. Climate change, as well as a long history of land grabs, are primary contributors to the devastating wildfires that destroyed Lahaina. In the 20th century, wealthy non-Hawaiians invaded the land to profit off of Hawaii's resources. Exploitive land use patterns, invasive grasses, and climate change catalyzed droughts caused this horrific tragedy. And the right narrative spin comes from Rebel News. There was certainly a confluence of underlying issues that contributed to the tragic wildfires in Maui, but climate change is far from being the main culprit if it is a cause at all. The resignation of Andaya is symbolic of deep institutional issues within Maui County's governance. While the corporate media looks to blame Lahaina's tragedy on climate change, the public must focus on leaders and institutions who failed their communities. Eric, we see it again and again. You never know how someone is going to react to a crisis situation until they're in one. I'm sure that this person thought they would have been able to handle this emergency, and then they, they, you know, obviously it was botched. And no one knows how they'll react to an emergency until they're in one. If I was hiring an emergency manager, I would hire someone who had been in an emergency before. That would be key to my hiring strategy. Yeah. China property giant Evergrande files for U.S. bankruptcy protection. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, BBC News, CNBC, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Investopedia. Property developer China Evergrande Group filed for bankruptcy protection in a Manhattan bankruptcy court on Thursday. In its filing, the company seeks recognition of restructuring talks ongoing in Hong Kong, the Cayman Islands, and the British Virgin Islands. The company, which defaulted on its debts in 2021, filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection to protect its assets in the U.S. as it works on a multi-billion dollar deal with creditors. In a separate statement, Evergrande highlighted that this application is a, quote, normal procedure for the offshore debt restructuring 
and does not involve bankruptcy petition. The company's announcement indicates that it is nearing the end of its restructuring process, which began more than one and a half years ago. This comes as the world's second-largest economy has been struggling under its post-pandemic-era lockdowns, with Beijing's property sector taking a hit. Since mid-2021, developers that make up 40% of the nation's home sales have defaulted. Analysts fear that problems in China's property sector could spread to other parts of the economy. We've got a Narrative A from Australian Financial Review. Two of China's biggest property developers have filed for bankruptcy protection in the past week, sending a chill through the international real estate industry. There's no end in sight for the struggling Chinese real estate sector, and it risks dragging down other sectors as well. It's a deep structural crisis in property and construction caused by debt and demographic problems that will take years to resolve. Bloomberg gives us narrative B for this story. Evergrande's bankruptcy filing in the U.S. should be seen as a normal procedure for a company that is trying to protect itself from creditors while finalizing a restructuring deal elsewhere. While China's property debt crisis is deepening, Evergrande Group, one of its most indebted companies, is too big to fail. Therefore, its refinancing must be successful. I'll tell you what, all of a sudden, you know, a year or so at this time, a year or so ago at this time, China had this impregnable, impenetrable economy. And now we're hearing all these cracks. It reminds me a little bit of back in the 80s. You know, people were set and determined that Japan was going to take over the world mm-hmm. economically. Now Japan is a hobbled state. You know, they, they, they're they not even on the world stage. And, no. you know, it, it can happen quick. You know what they say, the bigger they are. That same thing could happen to the U.S. someday, too, by the way. Ethiopia's Tigray reports 1,400 deaths after a food aid suspension. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Africa News, the Associated Press, the New York Times, Burkina Ethiopian News, and BBC News. Tigray's Disaster Risk Management Commissioner has reported that at least 1,411 people have starved to death in the war-torn northern region of Ethiopia since food aid was halted about four months ago. He stressed that the death toll could be even higher, as data has only been collated from three out of Tigray's six zones, the east, northwest, and southeast so far. Starvation in the region has reportedly reached a serious level, as the cold and rainy winter has aggravated the difficult situation, prompting the commissioner to urge the international community to restart humanitarian aid as soon as possible. The U.S. and the U.N.'s World Food Program paused food aid to Tigray in March as a last-resort measure after discovering a scheme to steal aid that has allegedly involved Ethiopian government officials extending the ban to the rest of the country in June. Aid deliveries had resumed in Tigray, where the recent war left 90% of the population in need of food assistance. Following a ceasefire in November, during the conflict, both sides reportedly looted humanitarian supplies and aid access was restricted. Meanwhile, fighting between Ethiopia's military and the northeastern Amhara region's ethnic military, Fano, Its former ally in the two-year Tigray conflict has intensified in recent weeks, pushing Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government to declare a state of emergency and block the internet. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Addis Standard. It would be understandable that major donors decided to halt food aid delivery following news of large-scale theft involving Ethiopian government officials if they were seeking a quick fix to this deliberate mismanagement of the system. However, it hasn't been restored after several months, and vulnerable civilians are the ones being punished as they remain without access to basic nutrition. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from the Wall Street Journal. 
Taxpayer-funded assistance to foreign countries must not be confused with charity, as it's a tool that must be widely used to support the national interest and produce real results for Americans. As a criminal network comprised of both sides of the Tigray conflict was outrageously playing the U.S. for a fool by stealing food aid, it would be unacceptable for Washington to keep wasting its limited resources. The Metaculous Nerd narrative says there's a 35% chance that Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed will experience a significant leadership disruption before the year 2025. I'll tell you, you hear stories like this. People say, oh, I think people are inherently good. I'd like to think that. I don't know. If you're if you're a leader stealing your own country's foreign aid and everyone's starving. That's about as low as it goes. It's man. sickening. It I mean, is. It's one thing to attack another country or try to do it. It's your, co- it's your country. Right. You're in yeah. charge of it. It's disgusting. In a special report, Kyiv's counteroffensive will fail to meet a key goal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Washington Post, Express UK, CNN, The Week, and Business Insider. According to a U.S. intelligence assessment briefed to members of Congress, Ukraine's counteroffensive will likely fail to reach the southeastern city of Melitopol. The U.S. intelligence officials believe that if Kyiv fails to reach Melitopol, One of the key goals of the counteroffensive, to break up Moscow's control over Ukraine's southern regions, thereby severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea, may not be accomplished. People familiar with the classified assessment told the Washington Post that Ukraine's forces, currently fighting for territory near the village of Robotyne, will fail to reach the occupied city as the Russian troops have set up miles-deep minefields to impede their advances. Meanwhile, the Institute for the Study of War, after Ukraine claimed partial success at Robotyne earlier in the week, suggested, quote, the Ukrainian forces' ability to advance to the outskirts of Robotyne, which Russian forces have dedicated significant effort, time, and resources to defend, remains significant even if Ukrainian gains are limited at this time. However, at least three rows of defensive lines, lined with mines, artillery, and a system of trenches, remain between Ukraine's forces and Melitopol. Even if Ukraine can pierce through the lines, a military analyst at the Foreign Policy Research Institute doubts Kyiv's depleted forces could advance. The assessment, based on Russia's defense proficiency, has been presented to many Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill. While some Republicans are reportedly bringing into question further spending packages, some Democrats have reportedly faulted the Biden administration for not sending more powerful weapons to Ukraine earlier in time. Thanks for that thorough recap, Eric. We have Narrative A from the Washington Post. Ukraine will likely fail to make significant advances in its counteroffensive and is expected to fall well short of its stated goals. Even if Ukraine can penetrate Russia's multi-layered defenses, how much further would these forces realistically be able to advance? Follow that up with Narrative B coming from U.S. News & World Report. While the Ukrainian offensive may be advancing slowly against well-prepared Russian defensive lines, They continue to push forward and gain momentum in several axes of attack. Kyiv's forces will undoubtedly achieve their goals. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. Iran's foreign minister arrives in Saudi Arabia after a diplomatic thaw. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, DW, the Tehran Times, Al Monitor, Al Jazeera, and Adelaide On Thursday, Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian arrived in Riyadh for a one-day visit on his first official trip to Saudi Arabia since the two countries resumed diplomatic ties in March. After meeting with his Saudi counterpart Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud, 
Iran's top diplomat announced in a joint press conference that relations between the two countries are on the right track, citing successful talks. Their three-and-a-half-hour talks focused on cooperation in security, economy, trade, rescue operations, and the environment. Other issues concerning the Middle East, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, were also discussed, according to Iran's state-run Islamic Republic news agency. Bin Farhan stressed Riyadh's desire to bolster bilateral ties and also revive previous agreements with Tehran in the economic and security fields, saying the kingdom seeks to expand cooperation in accordance with the March agreement between the two countries. During the visit of Amir Abdullahian, who was accompanied by Ali Reza Eniyadi, the new Iranian ambassador to the kingdom, the Saudi chief diplomat also said that both countries' ambassadors would soon resume their diplomatic activities. Mediated by China, the longtime rivals in March agreed to resume diplomatic ties, which broke down in 2016 after protesters stormed the Saudi embassy in Tehran in response to Riyadh's execution of a Shiite cleric. Scott, thank you for the facts. We begin our round of spins with an establishment critical narrative, and this one comes from Press TV. Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian traveling to Saudi Arabia after his Saudi counterpart visited Iran in June is another significant step in normalizing bilateral ties. The only ones who have an interest in attacking the China-brokered detente and benefiting from regional discord are foreign powers like Israel and the U.S. However, this will not prevent Riyadh and Tehran from jointly striving for regional stability and developing a more secure and prosperous future. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from the cradle. It would be premature to view Hossein Amir Abdullahian's trip as another sign that Riyadh is pivoting away from the West in favor of Iran and China. While the China-brokered deal may represent a victory for Chinese diplomacy, Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, is now back on track for a new U.S.-backed push to normalize relations with Israel. Moreover, the Saudis and Kuwaitis are at odds with Tehran over a disputed gas field. The region is in transition, and it's not yet clear where developments will lead. Once again, the nerds from Metaculous Prediction Community say that there's a 57% chance that Saudi Arabia will normalize relations with Israel by 2031 if Iran gets a nuclear bomb by then. Disney files another lawsuit against DeSantis' oversight board. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Cinema Blend, and Forbes. While Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has said he's moved on from the legal feud with Disney, the company has now reportedly filed counterclaims, including a breach of contracts claim against the Board of Supervisors picked by DeSantis to oversee Walt Disney World's special tax district. Disney says that while the land use agreement it had with the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was voided by the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, or CFTOD, is under a new name, it's still legally the same organization. Accordingly, Disney says the agreement should be abided by under the new contract. The company also argues that the CFTOD, which was given broad powers to oversee construction on Disney's land, has rendered it powerless, and it was established in violation of Florida law. It's also seeking an unspecified quantity in damages and is asking the court to declare its original agreement legal. This comes after Disney last month lost a bid in state court to dismiss the CFTOD's case against it with an attempt by DeSantis and the board to dismiss a federal case still awaiting a ruling. The Florida legislature initially eliminated the special district before backtracking over fears it would burden taxpayers. They instead overhauled the district and replaced its board with DeSantis's nominees, who, after discovering the Reedy Creek Agreement, chose to nullify it. DeSantis, whose actions regarding social issues like this have helped raise his profile nationally, has cited Disney's embrace of, quote, woke issues for taking aim at the company. 
The governor alleges that the company is sexualizing children, an accusation Disney COP Bob Iger called preposterous. And the Democratic narrative on this story comes from Vox. Disney is rightly fighting back against the authoritarian impulses of DeSantis, who has repeatedly weaponized Florida's government to infringe on Disney's First Amendment rights. The presidential hopeful has tied his political identity to fighting the absurdly characterized woke corporation. However, his real identity is his prejudice against LGBTQ plus people as seen by his discriminatory laws. DeSantis cannot force Disney to abide. Counter that with the Republican narrative coming from American Greatness. Disney has been badly losing its battle against DeSantis, and it will continue to do so. Not only does the corporation not have a moral ground to stand on, but it also lacks any legal argument for its ability to defy state law. Disney is shamefully committed to indoctrinating children with inappropriate content. Its behavior should not be rewarded with undeserved corporate welfare. I wouldn't mess with any corporation who in the middle of Florida can make it so there's no mosquitoes on their on their land. <laughs> Major Hurricane Hillary tracks toward Baja, Mexico, and California. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, NBC, ABC7 Los Angeles, CBS, and the New York Times. Hurricane Hillary, classified as a major Category 4 storm, barreled toward Mexico's Baja, California Peninsula and the southwestern U.S. on Friday, bringing heavy rains. Experts say it's expected to hit Southern California, currently projected as a tropical storm this weekend. Though it's expected to be downgraded to a tropical storm by the time it reaches Southern California, it would be the first ever tropical storm watch issued for the state in the modern era of issuing warning messages. Meteorologists predict that the storm could dump more than a year's worth of rain in parts of California. A tropical storm warning was issued in Cabo, Mexico, and a hurricane warning was issued for parts of Baja, California. If the storm makes landfall in California, it will be the first tropical storm to do so in nearly 84 years. Since El Cordonazo, a tropical storm system that hit Long Beach in 1939, killing 93 people. Hillary sustained winds close to 145 miles per hour or 233 kilometers per hour on Friday and is expected to intensify before it weakens. Heavy rainfall associated with the storm is expected to hit the southwestern U.S. through Wednesday, peaking on Sunday and Monday. Hillary first formed off the coast of Manzanillo, Mexico and shifted west-northwest toward Baja. Flood watches have been issued for Los Angeles and Ventura counties, including Catalina Island, and a hurricane warning in Mexico's Baja, California Peninsula from Punta Abrejos to Punta Eugenia. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from New York Times. Scientists agree that climate change is making hurricanes worse and increasing the likelihood of dangerous, powerful storms. Global warming is also increasing the amount of rain that storms can produce and rapidly intensifying the strength and reach of tropical systems. This trend is real, and it's worrying. Governments need to take action against climate change before things get worse. Narrative B comes from the New York Post. Global warming should not be the scapegoat for every extreme weather event. The major reason for an increase in hurricane-related damage is not due to an increase in the number or intensity of hurricanes, but rather because more people live within the paths of these storms. Rather than fear-mongering, authorities should focus on reducing vulnerability along coastlines and rehabilitating wetlands. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 50% chance that New York City will experience a hurricane by the year 2030. Jordanian intelligence has been accused of targeting the LGBTQ plus community. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, 24 News, Al Monitor, and The New Arab. The Guardian reported on Friday that human rights groups have accused Jordan of using its internal security forces to intimidate members of the LGBTQ community by outing them to their families and of closing down two LGBTQ organizations. Activists have also reportedly been abducted, harassed, and surveilled. The LGBTQ community has been increasingly targeted in Jordan in recent months, with activists pointing to the country's General Intelligence Directorate, or GID, as the main perpetrator of the crackdown. The GID allegedly detained two activists and froze their bank accounts in January. A senior researcher at Human Rights Watch reported that government's goal was not to directly attack the LGBTQ community, but rather weaponize society against it. In response, the Jordanian government said that, quote, no LGBTQ organizations exist in Jordan and claimed that the accusations that the GID targeted the two activists were in a bid to increase the chances of receiving asylum abroad. According to Human Rights Watch, Jordan is one of the few Middle Eastern countries that does not have laws that overtly forbid same-sex relations. However, the country's penal code includes, quote, immorality provisions that can be used to target sexual and gender minorities. Earlier this month, the group warned that recent cybercrime legislation in Jordan was a, quote, disaster for the LGBTQ community and an attack on freedom of expression. Human Rights Watch brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Jordanian authorities are not only attacking the LGBTQ community, but civil liberties in Jordan as a whole. The international community must put pressure on the Jordanian government to end its crackdown on personal freedoms. BBC News gives us an establishment critical narrative and it says one should always keep in mind that attitudes in the Middle East regarding the LGBTQ community are in many cases the product of European colonialism. Many of the penal codes used against the community originate from the colonial period when the occupying authorities who viewed many non-Western societies as hyper-permissive brought in such codes to defend so-called moral purity. And the Washington Post brings us narrative C. The current moral panic in the Middle East regarding the LGBTQ community actually seems to reflect the current culture wars occurring in the U.S. regarding the same community. In the entire region, from Turkey and Lebanon to Iraq and Jordan, this small minority community is under attack as politicians attempt to drum up support for their political aspirations. Our final story, World Chess Bars Trans Players from Women's Events. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, The Independent, Forbes, the International Chess Federation, and The Washington Post. The International Chess Federation, or FIDE, has released new policies banning transgender players from women's events and stripping some trans women of their titles. The new rules will remain until further analysis is conducted, which could last two years. FIDE says it will only recognize an individual's gender identity, quote, consistent with the identity they maintain in their non-chess life and that has been confirmed by national authorities based on a due legal and formal process of change. This doesn't mean trans players won't be able to compete at all, but they must provide sufficient proof of a gender change that complies with their national laws and regulations. Furthermore, any player holding either a men's or women's title before transitioning will have their title abolished. Under the new policies, any transgender men who won titles in pre-transition women's tournaments will be stripped of those achievements, and the abolished women's title may be transferred into a general title of the same or lower level. FIDE also said that while it won't discuss a player's gender change publicly, it holds the right to inform the organizers and other relevant parties on the gender change. 
Meanwhile, FIDE has stated that transgender players are allowed to participate in the open section of the official FIDE chess tournaments. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a left narrative coming from Outsports.com. Since the game of chess has nothing to do with one's physicality, FIDE is unable to hide behind the overused excuse of unfair athletic performance, suggesting that this decision really stems from an anti-trans mindset. In one fell swoop, FIDE has persecuted the trans community and patronized women by suggesting they're intellectually inferior to men. Chess is a game for everyone to enjoy equally, but the professional levels have yet to recognize the fact. And the right narrative spin comes from We Go Chess. What critics won't tell you is that women already have a choice between competing in the general chess competitions, which are male-dominated, or in the women's tournaments, which are all-female. The reason for this isn't that there aren't women in the elite category, although there are very few, but rather to offer women a higher chance of placing in a tournament. FIDE already had an inclusive and fair system underway, so this is nothing more than biological men trying to invade a female-only space. Our final nerd narrative comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50% chance that the first female will win the World Chess Championship by the year 2110. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, August 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on the Verity Podcast, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.